I want you to take a look. Um, uh, I had some handouts on the back podium. I hope I had enough. Uh, Steve were, and Ken, those guys who were passing them out, do you have any left? Okay, it looks like Jimmy has some in the back. If you didn't receive a, a packet of papers that says Daniel 11 on the front, Jimmy has one of those for you. Please hold your hand up and please share because I, I think we may get low here in a little bit. Uh, Daniel 11, as he's passing those out, I want you to turn over there for just a moment to Daniel 11. And I want you to experience what I experienced when I began looking at this section of Scripture, at this lesson. I want you to turn to the beginning of chapter 11 and then turn a page and notice that chapter 11 doesn't end. And turn another page and notice chapter 11 only ends after about like three or four pages have gone by. It's a long chapter to say the least. And there's a whole lot in it. It's not a chapter of fluff, it's a chapter of prophecy, it's a vision about what would come. And so I didn't feel right, uh, does anybody need another uh, or a packet? Jimmy still has a few of those, Troy would like one, Teresa, okay, uh, but that's, uh, he'll come around to you Troy, don't worry about it. But uh, as I looked at that, there's a whole lot there, it's a very detailed vision given to Daniel. I didn't want to just brush over it, but I also didn't want to take three or four lessons and talk about every detail with you. And so I kind of compromised so that we could, uh, we could sort of move through this at a, at a fair clip. And I just wrote down, as I was moving through that chapter, I wrote down my notes uh, in the fashion you see them now. And so that's a little bit of the background of what I do. I just took this and broke it down as best I could by looking at uh, history and what others have found and all this sort of thing. And I thought by the end of it, I had like nine pages and I thought, well, that certainly won't do. And so I decided I would just print this off and give it to you. So that if you're one who's interested in all of this history information, you can look through and see the narrative of what happened. But for the rest of you, I'm just going to touch on a few key points in chapter 11. And then we'll touch on some more spiritual things and, uh, uh, as we get ready to close the lesson. And so looking at Daniel chapter 11 on your handout, uh, you'll notice verse 1 says, In the first year of Darius the Mede, I arose to be an encouragement and a protection for him. Don't let that throw you. Uh, that's not Daniel speaking. That is, in fact, the angel who was sent to Daniel telling him what he had been doing in the first year of Darius the Mede. This prophecy is actually made, according to chapter 10, verse 1, during the time of Cyrus the Persian. And so be, uh, be aware of that. Don't stumble across chapter 11, verse 1, and get all messed up in your times, like I did for a while. It was very frustrating hearing these guys you know, talk about these different kings and wondering why I wasn't matching them up. I had the wrong time frame in mind. So anyhow, verse 1 is, is important to grasp what it actually is. Let's take a look at verse 3. Verse 3 comes after the Persian kingdom. You have the Greek kingdom. And you have in verse 3, it reads, And a mighty king will arise. He will rule with great authority and do as he pleases. 
But as soon as he has arisen, his kingdom will be broken up and parceled out toward the four points of the compass, though not to his own descendants, not according to his authority which he wielded, for his sovereignty will be uprooted and given to others besides them. And so you look at that and you start to wonder, well, what is that even talking about? We touched on this earlier in Daniel, and this has to do with Alexander the Great, the mighty king of Greece who conquered and went from west to east and conquered all of the known land. But then just as soon as he was finished doing that, at a very young age, in his 30s, he died. And... He didn't make any provisions really for what would happen to his kingdom because, of course, he still felt very invincible just having gone through this long line of conquering. And so he dies and his four generals, the four points of the compass, receive his land. Not his descendants, not according to his authority. I've listed those generals out, Cassander, Ptolemy, the P is silent, Ptolemy, Antigonus, and Seleucus. And so those are the four guys that inherited his kingdom. <clears throat> the two that are the most important for this prophecy are Seleucus and Ptolemy. The king of the south is Ptolemy I in verse 5. The king of the north, or rather, sorry, that's getting ahead of myself, but the king of the south is Ptolemy. Now look down to verse 6, and I want to. we're just going to move through some of this. The other information is there. But in verse 6, it says, After some years... They will form an alliance, and the daughter of the king of the south will come to the king of the north to carry out a peaceful agreement. But she will not retain her position of power, nor will he remain with his power, but she will be given up, along with those who brought her in, and the one who sired her, as well as he who supported her in those times. That's an important section of this prophecy, and I'll tell you why. It didn't make sense to me until I read some of the history and then it became very apparent what's going on here. Ptolemy I and Seleucus, they've died. So Ptolemy II is the king of the south in this case and Antiochus II is the king of the north in this case. And they enter into a treaty with each other as you look down in your bulleted list. The peace treaty involved giving uh, we'll call her Bernice because I'm familiar with that name. That's Ptolemy II's daughter. She was given to Antiochus II as a wife. And the agreement was that her son would be the heir to that throne. And so you notice here that after some years in verse 6, they will form an alliance, these two kings. And the daughter of the king of the south, that's Ptolemy's daughter, Bernice, will come to the king of the north to carry out a peaceful arrangement. That's a treaty. And so it's predicting that the daughter of one king would go to the other, not just that that would happen, but actually which kings that would happen with. And that she would be given to him for a peaceful arrangement. But it says she will not retain her position of power. So there's going to be something that goes wrong. And what goes wrong is that Antiochus II is already married. Whoops. And so Antiochus II has a wife. Her name is Laodice. And she didn't take kindly to the new wife. And so she had her husband Antiochus II poisoned. She arranged the assassination of Bernice and her son, the heir. Then not long after that, Ptolemy II, who sent Bernice over to Antiochus as the peace treaty, he dies. 
And so everybody in that arrangement ends up dead before very long. And so that's what's predicted here in the end of verse 6. You see, she will be given up along with those who brought her in and the one who sired her as well as he who supported her in those times. And so it's sort of this grand, uh, everybody's making these big plans and then everybody dies. And uh, it really brings back to mind the, the teaching in James chapter 4 that your life is just a vapor that appears for a little while and then is gone. They made a lot of grand plans about the future and then poof, they were just gone. And so that's what's going on there. Let's move down to verse 10. There's a, there's a war that happens where Bernice's brother Ptolemy III rises to rule and comes after uh, the other king and takes the idols of gold and silver in verse 8. And, uh, and then we come down to verse 10. Let's look at there. It says, His sons will mobilize and assemble a, great, a multitude of great forces, and one of them will keep on coming and overflow and pass through, that he may again wage war up to his very fortress. The king of the south will be enraged and go forth and fight with the king of the north. Then the latter will raise a great multitude, but that multitude will be given into the hand of the former. And when the multitude is carried away, his heart will be lifted up, and he will cause tens of thousands to fall, yet he will not prevail. And so if you're just looking at the surface of this, what you have is a sort of back and forth battle going on between great and mighty armies. I want you to key in on the beginning of verse 10. There's something important here. It starts out his sons. Uh, come down to your bulleted list. Remember Antiochus II was poisoned by his wife Laodice. His son Seleucus II took the throne. Seleucus II had two sons. And so when Seleucus II died, one of his sons became king. That's Seleucus III. And the other, who is Antiochus III, became a general. Worked alongside his brother. And those sons prepared for war. They assembled a great army. But Seleucus III was murdered. And his brother, Antiochus III, then took the throne. And alone, that brother waged the war that both had helped to prepare. Now read again the beginning of verse 10. His sons, plural, both of them will mobilize and assemble a multitude of great forces. So both of them are preparing for the war. One of them will keep on coming. Do you see the implication that one would die and one would be left to wage the battle that both had prepared. A very specific prophecy that no human could have foreseen. It proves that this really is a divine writing. And again in the latter part of verse 10. That he may again wage war up to his very fortress. And so both prepared for the war. Only one got to fight it. Okay, so let me, I give you a little refresher here that Antiochus III on page 4, Antiochus III is now the king of the north, Ptolemy IV is the king of the south. Verses 11 and 12 predict an extended back and forth battle of great armies. And so I listed out uh, some of the figures of the armies. Ptolemy IV's army in the south 
was 70,000 men, 5,000 horsemen, and 73 element, uh, elements, elephants. 73 elephants, these big massive things. Antiochus III's army in the north was 62,000 men, 6,000 cavalry, and 102 elephants. And so what he lacked in men, he made up for with elephants. And so these great, I mean, you could imagine these two great armies coming against each other in an open field. If you were watching on the sidelines, I'm not sure what I would think. Uh, that's just a wild scene. But at the end of verse 12, you have Ptolemy IV, who has a victory, but it doesn't last. In verse 13, the king of the north will again raise a greater multitude. And so there's a, there's a major turning point here where the king of the north, Antiochus III, some of the legendary warriors come back to fight at his side once again. And they go back to attack the king of the south. And something happens. In verse 14, it says, Now in those times many will rise up against the king of the south. The violent ones among your people will also lift themselves up in order to fulfill the vision, but they will fall down. That is predicting sort of rioting and rebellion within the southern king's camp. And what's recorded is that the Jews were the main instigators of those riots. They were for the king of the north. They wanted him to win the war and so they caused trouble in the south. And the, the general who was leading the southern group at that time punished those Jews who aided the north. You notice in the end of verse 14, they will fall down. That is, he took action against them after the fact. There's some battles that are recorded there, very major things that happened. Um, I want you to come down to, let's come down to about verse 17. <clears throat> That's page 5 if you're looking on the handout. Let's look at verse 18. It says, Then he will turn his face to the coastlands and capture many, but a commander will put a stop to his scorn against him. Moreover, he will repay him for his scorn. So he will turn his face toward the fortresses of his own land, but he will stumble and fall and be found no more. Uh, there you have Antiochus III who went to take over some lands that his ancestors had originally taken. And when he does that, the Romans take note and they don't care for it. And so they begin to come against him and send messages to him that he ought to disband what he had taken. He refuses. They eventually conquer him and he has to surrender and offer up a great deal in a peace treaty. If you look down at your third bullet point between the, section, uh, the top section on verse 5, or sorry, page 5. Third bullet point, the terms of peace were costly to him. Among the terms was an annual payment of 12,000 talents and 20 hostages every three years. And they had to be between the ages of 18 and 40. By the way, that's when the government finds you useful. Beyond that, nope. 
18 and 40, that's it. So anyhow, uh, he goes back to Syria, Antiochus III does, and he was killed by rebels, uh, accomplishing the prophecy of verse 19. He will turn his face toward the fortresses of his own land, but he will stumble and fall and be found no more. There's a death that happens there. There's some intrigue going on. Uh, eventually in verse 21, you come to a despicable person who arises. That despicable person is Antiochus IV. He rose and took control of the kingdom. And you can note that there's a great big block of text on page 6 about him. And uh, we won't take the time to read all of that. But you'll note that a great deal is said and not much of it is favorable toward him. He was not a good king. He was not someone who favored the people who were faithful to God. And so there's, there's a lot there. Yeah, I'm, I'm not going to go through any more of it with you tonight. I've got some other things on our plate that we need to look at. But I wanted to give you a, a, a little taste of what you can find there as you compare the history books to the Bible and you look at this prophecy and you see things playing out in these major events in history, the rise and fall of various kingdoms. And that is a grand thing in and of itself. But if we focus only on that, we've missed the point. If all we do is look at the history and we compare what's written in the history books and we see how exactly it is uh, what was put in Daniel 11, we've missed something. We've missed the message. You see, there had to be a message for Daniel. There had to be a point and purpose for this prophecy, for this vision, for Daniel, for the people in captivity, for him so that he would have some understanding. And, and that's what we need to find. We need to find the point. We need to find the purpose of the vision. And then we can start to pick out some really interesting details. I want you to go back to Daniel chapter 10. And if you look in Daniel 10 verse 14, you'll find the purpose Daniel 10 verse 14, the angel says, Now I have come to give you an understanding of what will happen to your people in the latter days, for the vision pertains to days yet future. If you're going to underline anything in Daniel 10 through 12, I would underline that to begin with, because that is like a writer saying, I'm writing this book so that you can know how to da 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 da. Right? It's like a cookbook that says, I'm writing this book so you can figure out how to cook and not burn things anymore. I came to you to give you an understanding of the things that will happen to your people, the Israelite people, God's people, the people who are now in captivity, what's going to happen to them. That's what this vision is about. That's the point and purpose of it. And so now you know what to look for, right? Now we look for those, your people sections of Daniel 11. Starting with Daniel 11.13. Look back there now in your Bible. It says, For the king of the north will again raise a greater multitude than the former. And after an interval of some years, he will press on with a great army and much equipment. That's all the elephants and stuff that we talked about. Verse 14, Now in those times, many will rise up against the king of the south. The violent ones among your people. 
Do you notice that? That's important. That's part of the central message. He's giving Daniel all these details about what's leading up to this moment, and now he's going to tell him what's going, something that's going to happen with his people. The violent ones among your people will also lift themselves up in order to fulfill the vision, but they will fall down. And so he's telling him, look, Daniel, when this time comes, when these kings are going to war against each other and this massive battle is undertaken, there's going to be some of your people who rebel against the government they're under so that they might welcome in a new governing body, so that they might welcome in a new ruler. And they would suffer for it, yes, but that's what they would do. The king of the north will come, verse 15, he will cast a siege ramp and capture a well-fortified city and the forces of the south will not stand their ground, not even their choicest troops, for there will be no strength to make a stand. And so some of the more violent ones of the Israelites would stand with a Seleucid power as it came to conquer, suffering for rebelling against their current rulers. Look over at Daniel 11 verse 28. That Seleucid power that they welcomed in, who eventually sort of won that battle and took control, eventually from him came Antiochus IV. And Antiochus IV, not many years from that time, would say, would, in verse 28, it says, He'll return to his land with much plunder, but his heart will be set against the Holy Covenant, and he will take action and then return to his own land. And so not long after some died to help the changeover of power, that power that they died to welcome in is now going to stand against the Holy Covenant. That's God's people. That's the Israelites. In verse 30 of Daniel 11, it says, The ships of Kittim will come against him. Therefore he will be disheartened and will return and become enraged at the Holy Covenant and take action so he will come back and show regard for those who forsake the Holy Covenant. You know what that tells you? There would be some people of Daniel's people who would forsake the Holy Covenant. And they would be favored by the ruler of the time because of it. Verse 31, forces from him will arise, desecrate the sanctuary fortress, and do away with the regular sacrifice. We talked before about Antiochus sacrificing the pig on the altar and all of these sorts of terrible things that he did. He took away the regular sacrifice, desecrated the temple, made it to where it was really unusable. And it says they will set up the abomination of desolation Verse 32, by smooth words, he will turn to godlessness those who act wickedly toward the covenant. And so again, you look at this and he is really shifting the balances toward those who are acting wickedly. He's favoring those who are against the holy covenant. They're being favored. They're being blessed. But the people who know their God, it says, will display strength, take action. Those who have insight among the people will give understanding to the many, yet they will fall. And notice all the ways they will fall. By sword and by flame, by captivity and by plunder for many days. Now then, when they fall, they'll be granted a little help. Many will join with them in hypocrisy. 
Some of those who have insight will fall in order to refine, purge, and make them pure until the end of time. Or till the end time, I should say, because it is still to come at the appointed time. And so this governing authority, they rebelled to welcome in, now is turning the people against the Holy Covenant, is favoring those who act wickedly, is through his smooth tongue, he's sort of converting people to godlessness. He desecrates the sanctuary, takes away the regular sacrifice, and the people of God are over here being pushed down further and further. And then those who have insight, those who still serve God, they're pushed even further down, killed by the sword, by flame, all those things. The prophecy says that Daniel's people, the majority of them will become godless. And that the ones who do remain godly will have a very bad time of it. It's not going to be a pleasant time for them. But I think it's important that we understand that in verse 35, some who have insight will fall in order to refine, purge, and make them pure until the end time. That is perhaps one of the only things that I find comforting when the church begins suffering persecution is that the ones who aren't really there, who aren't really serving God, who are just sort of there because it benefits them some way, those are the ones who you usually don't have to deal with for much longer. A lot of times those become the troublemakers, the ones who cause unrest. Here he says the people of God, some of them would fall, but through that whole process of persecution and and pushing down and destruction, that they would be refined, they would be purified, they would be purged, and they would become pure. In Daniel chapter 12, the first few verses, as we near the end of the vision, we see a better message. There's a message of hope there. Looking at verse 1, there's, a, there's the end of Antiochus IV. He is uh, gone away. And if you look for accounts of his death, they vary pretty wildly. But the point is, he's taken away. That there is a relief given to the people of God. And that's what's described in Daniel 12, starting in verse 1. Now at that time, he says, Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people. Notice your people. Still that link running all the way through the prophecy. He stands guard over the sons of your people and he will arise. And there will be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, everyone who is found written in the book, will be rescued. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. I want you to pause there and notice the two types of relief that are discussed. One has to do with those who yet live, doesn't it? That's those who would be rescued. 
Those who would be enduring the terrible treatment under Antiochus IV now are being rescued from it by his removal. But there would be several who died. Remember, there were those who were put to death with a sword and flame and all those things. What about them? They might ask and Daniel might ask. You tell me, what's the thing that all those who have passed on faithful to God look forward to? What's the next thing, the next event for them? The resurrection from the dead. The reward that they will be given from God for their faithfulness. And that's verse 2. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will wake these to everlasting life. But the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. He says, those who have insight will shine brightly like the brightness of the expanse of heaven. Those who lead the many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. The end result of all this is that the righteous ones will be rescued. Those who maintain their allegiance to God rather than men. Those who refuse to behave in godless ways. Those who gave everything to serve the true God. They would be rescued. And those who died, well, they will be resurrected. Resurrected to a time of peace. Resurrected to their reward. And the point is that there is nothing that any enemy can do to stop God from rescuing His people. He rescues even those who are dead if they died in Him. The question that Daniel seems to have asked is, what's going to happen to my people? That's what this angel came to give him understanding concerning. And what he tells him is that they will place allegiance in many things. They'll lose their lives to serve a foreign ruler. They will turn against God to follow a despicable ruler. But some will remain faithful. And some will be killed for it. Those who remain faithful will be rescued. Those who behave godless lives will endure disgrace and everlasting contempt. So what can we gain from that? What can we gain by looking at this? It's sort of a strange look for us because when it was written it was the future, but for us it's the past. What can we gain? I think we gain a couple pieces of advice, of godly wisdom, the first is, be careful where you place your allegiances. Today we have different political parties, don't we? And those political parties, the leaders of them can behave quite nastily toward each other. What do people see in you? Where does your allegiance lie? Is it with God or is it with a political party or a political candidate? What do they see from you? What do they hear from your mouth? Is it the wisdom of God or is it the hatred of man? Be careful where you place your allegiances. And in all things, make sure they are with God. And the second piece of godly wisdom is that God can use even the worst rulers to purify His people. 
You notice Antiochus IV was a terrible, despicable, worst of the worst sort of guy. He hated the Holy Covenant. He destroyed uh, holy things and holy practices, holy people. But in all of that, God used His persecution to purify His people. And we need to recognize that too as part of His wisdom. There are times when, when the people of God become soft, when we have forgotten who we are. And persecution often brings those things back into mind. It causes us to ask, why are we doing the things that we're doing? Why, when I'm hated so much and treated so badly, why do I continue to worship God? Some will not find in their heart an answer at all and will leave. Others will find the right answer. Others will understand and remember that God is sovereign that He is the all-powerful, all-knowing God, the Creator of everything, and that I worship Him because He deserves my worship. And He deserves it in a way that is pleasing to Him. God can use even the worst ruler to purify His people, to bring back to our minds the reason that we serve Him. Let's make sure that in everything we behave godly, rather than godlessly. That is our look at Daniel chapter 11 for tonight. If you want to talk more about anything that I've given you, please don't hesitate to ask me. I don't claim to have all the answers about everything, but I'll give you whatever I can. Tonight though, there is one more important thing before I step down. And that is that we offer an invitation to anyone who has a spiritual need. Those who are struggling spiritually, those Christians who have departed the way of God and are remembering that they need to come back to Him. This is a time for you. This is a time where we welcome you back as God does if you will renew your allegiance to Him. And it's also a time when if you are studying the Scriptures, you've come to understand their message, and you believe in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and you're willing to change your life to obey Him rather than yourself or anyone else, that we will take your confession and we will baptize you in His name for the forgiveness of your sins. He will raise you up and you will be part of His family having pledged your allegiance to Him, never to turn back. If you have a spiritual need tonight, we are ready to receive you and help you with it. Please come forward as we stand and sing.